0: As we come back to our study in the New Testament letter of Philippians this morning, we see Paul taking up the topic of work. Not the workplace, he addresses that in a bunch of his other letters, but the work that we all have as Christians, the work of obedience, the work of holiness. If you'll remember, Paul is writing Philippians this letter from house arrest in the city of Rome, somewhere around the year 60 A.D., And he's writing to a church he had helped plant about 10 years earlier in the city of Philippi, in what is now modern-day Greece. The Philippians had heard of Paul's imprisonment. They sent a guy named Epaphroditus to check on him. They brought a gift for his welfare. And now Paul is writing this letter back to them, both with an update on his condition for his dear brothers and sisters, and an exhortation for them to grow in unity and humility as they follow his example And seek to become more like Jesus. So, last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 2 and saw how Paul urged the Philippians towards humility in light of what Jesus had done for them, how he hadn't counted equality with God a thing to be grasped, but had made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is lifting up Jesus as both the Savior and the example for his people. His grace has set them free now to live for him. And now as we continue in chapter 2, Paul comes back again to how living in light of this gospel, living in light of this Savior must affect the way the Philippians carry out their lives. So with our time together this morning, let's look at three different people in this passage Nathan just read for us, and each of these three people works, all right? First, let's see the work of the Christian. The work of the Christian. Second, let's see the work of God. The work of God. And finally, let's see the work of Paul. The work of Paul. So first, the work of the Christian. Look there at verse 12 with me. Paul begins and he says, therefore, based on what we've just been reading, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, in light of what Paul has just done in calling the Philippians to unity and showing them how Jesus had laid down his life for them, he now commands them, these Christians that he's calling his beloved, to work out their salvation. Now, it's important kind of on the get-go here, folks, to, to make some distinctions in what salvation means in the Bible. One author puts it simply and well when he says salvation has a past, a present, and a future. A past, a present, and a future. So, the Bible, first of all, is clearly, incredibly clear that in our sin, we are spiritually dead. We are spiritual corpses totally and completely unable to save ourselves. It says we cannot work out our salvation because dead people can't do things. Spiritually dead people cannot want spiritual life, cannot want God. But in that state, when we were lost, when we were enemies of God, he saved us. And he did this by sending his son on a unilateral rescue mission to awaken our dead hearts and give Our blind eyes sight. This is the mercy and grace of God, and this is the salvation he has worked in the hearts of those who belong to him. We can call this justification. Justification. It's the legal act of God as he, the judge, puts our sin on Jesus' account and then puts Jesus' righteousness on our account, thereby saving us. Wiping our record clean and giving us the fullness of Christ. And so it's the way a judge hammers his gavel and declares a defendant not guilty. That's justification. That's God seeing our sin not applied to our account, but to the account of his sinless son. And so declaring us not guilty once and for all. That's being saved, that's being justified. But as we live in this new justified state, as forgiven and redeemed children of God, we now have the Holy Spirit. We now have this new spiritual life. And so we can actually grow in obeying God and living for our Savior in obedience and trust. We can call that sanctification. Sanctus, coming from the word holy, holification, becoming more like Jesus So so just like God the judge declares us not guilty and justifies us once and for all, so God in sanctification acts as a master surgeon working by his spirit to actually carve out sin in our hearts with the scalpel of his word, making us more like his son. And one day we've been singing about it, church. Oh, glorious day. I can't wait We will be with our Savior forever, made completely whole and perfected in righteousness. And we call that glorification. And that will last forever. Our salvation then will be finally and fully completed. All this work of salvation is the work of God. We'll see that in a moment. But here, Paul specifically, primarily is honing in and focusing on that middle reality. Sanctification, becoming holy, increasing in faith and love. And he exhorts his loved ones in Philippi to work out that salvation in their hearts. He may be distant, but they must still persevere. They have done nothing to secure this salvation. It has been completely given to them in Christ. But with that salvation now governing their lives, they must live in light of it. All throughout the Bible, we see that true faith, true faith given by God, the author of faith, is never merely head knowledge, is never merely mental assent. True faith always manifests itself always works itself out, always reveals itself in changed hearts and changed lives. Christians do not obey to earn God's favor. If you're trying that right now, stop. You'll never do it. But Christians do obey as those who have already received favor in Christ. I love how Stephen Lawson puts it in his commentary that we gave out a few weeks ago on Philippians. He writes, the Philippians were not to work for their salvation, but to work out their salvation. They were to work out what God had already worked in. The Philippians were not to work for their salvation, he says, but to work out their salvation, work out what God had already worked in. And there at the end of verse 12, we see how they are to do this, with what posture of heart they are to do this. Paul says they are to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Having just gone through the book of Exodus as a church, we think immediately of Sinai and the law of God, don't we? As the mountain and the people tremble under the presence of a holy God. We don't often necessarily think of these two words in the context of grace, though, do we? Yet, Paul says to Christians who have received the grace of God, new life in Christ, no more condemnation, that they are now to obey God with fear and trembling. This doesn't mean ungodly fear, fear that distrusts the sovereignty of the Lord. We saw Israel manifest that fear multiple times in Exodus. It doesn't mean fear of punishment either. If Christians still had punishment to fear, then the cross of Christ would be powerless. Jesus on the cross has taken all the punishment of his people. There's no punishment left to fear. Instead, I think the best way to understand this fear is kind of that healthy fear of the Lord we read about through the scriptures and and Proverbs comes to mind, right? The, The right understanding of the God who has saved us. That God is not our buddy, but our king. And actually, if you think about it, obedience as a Christian begins to make a whole lot more sense when we view God like that. When we view God as the sovereign of the universe who has wonderfully, unbelievably, sent his very son, like we saw last week, to die for us so we could be made his sons and daughters. This God deserves our fear our reverential awe, lest we fall into sin. This fear will rightly root out laziness and apathy and work graciously to fuel joy-filled obedience. Dear Christian, is there any part of your day-to-day walk with God that includes this kind of fear. Not, not dread that you need to somehow appease God as a cosmic bully, but reverential awe of the God who has reached out in love to save you and to make you holy. Paul's words here should both encourage the weary, we'll see that soon, but it must also jolt the lazy among us. Should it be jolting you right now that Paul would say, you're a Christian, work out your faith with fear? There in verses 14 through 16, Paul gives more specifics then about how the Philippians are to do this, how to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. They're to do it. As they put to death things like grumbling and disputing. So this calls back what we saw last week, where Paul calls the church to unity through humility in Christ. Here he's going back to that same theme. So do not grumble. Do not dispute. He says, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. That idea of blamelessness doesn't mean perfection or sinlessness, but a life that lacks obvious moral defect. As the Christians in Philippi work out their sanctification, they will do so in unity and blamelessness, even as the world around them sinks deeper into rejection of God and his good design. And church, remember that but for the grace of God, we are all crooked and twisted. Sin, by its nature, bends us in on ourselves, away from God. We twist his good creation, we distort and pervert it, and we're under judgment as a result if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what can be called the bad news of the Bible. The Bible is a book full of bad news. Sin condemns us as God rejecters, lawbreakers, death deservers. But as you read the Bible, you'll also find that that bad news sets up the greatest news of all time. That is that when we were lost in sin, Jesus Came. God sent his only son to bear that rejection that we deserved, or we showed. Jesus came to take on our breaking of his father's law. Jesus came to take on our rightful death. He took it all on himself and died in our place, so that if we will repent of our sin and trust in him, we will be saved. Friend, that can be you this morning. Your standing apart from Christ before God is not safe. And yet you can find refuge in that very same God by turning in faith to Jesus this morning. And Christian, we see that the new life we have in Jesus gives us love for him that would not have been there without his grace ability to work out our sanctification and bear witness to the world around us of God's light, right? Paul says, holding fast, that could also have the sense of holding forth the word of life. and in sense, some people point down, I think it's true. if you hold fast to it, you will hold it forth. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ must always be something we hold fast to and then hold forth. Brother and sister, Is your life noticeably different from the world around you? I think for many Christians in this country, maybe specifically, we might try to rearrange this passage a bit differently. Maybe say something like, go ahead and grumble about what is worth grumbling about so-called children of God amidst this twisted generation among whom you fit in as dim lights holding fast to temporary comfort. Christian, the way we live our lives must be different. I wonder if you were to go to a kind of a, a life coach that didn't ascribe to The gospel of christ would your life decisions make total sense to him or her or would at times she scratch her head a little bit why would you make that call why would you spend your money that way why would you do that with your career approval from the world church is fickle and fleeting god's approval lasts It might be worth it this week to pray through this passage and ask the Spirit to convict you of ways that you are dimmer in your light than he has called you to be. All right, so we see that as Christians we must live out our new lives in growing holiness and increasing maturity. Alec Mateer uh, takes this image of light and he says this, Light is a beautiful illustration of something that does what it has to do by being what it ought to be. That's the life of the Christian, living out who we truly are by being who we have become in Christ, this new life in the Spirit. We do so by growing in obedience with fear and confidence and joy. But just like last week, when we kind of looked at this call to unity and humility, if we stop here, if we leave it here, we are going to be really good-looking Christians, miserable on the inside. Look there in verse 13 for a reminder of a wonderful truth in the midst of all these imperatives. The work of God. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. God who works in you. The gospel, God's role in salvation doesn't end at conversion. It doesn't end even at justification. God's work of grace in your life, Christian, his upholding of your faith continues. It never decreases. It never lets up. God is always at work. Remember, he never sleeps. God, God works in you, brother. God works in you, sister, And that truth is both wonderfully unsettling and gloriously comforting. For it is God who works in you. Dear Christian, the almighty creator and the sovereign of the universe who set the stars in place is working in you by his spirit to grow you and prepare you for heaven. He has saved you justified you, declared you legally holy before his great throne, and now he's hard at work in you to make you practically holy. You've been saved by his gracious hand, and now you're never going to be the same. This echoes what we saw in our first week in this letter when Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 6, that... I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is ultimately the truth that God works in us that compels, motivates, and fuels us to then work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. Grace does not make us lazy. Grace compels us to get to work. And Paul continues by saying that God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that beautiful? See, God is not a wishful thinker. God does not merely have good intentions towards you. He has both a will and a way. He wants holiness for you and he will get holiness for you because he is God. He can do that. So, I want the Washington Nationals to win the World Series this October. November. I have no ability whatsoever to make that happen. I can try all the kinds of famous superstitions that baseball players are actually really well known for, wearing the same socks every third game or whatever it would be. I can do nothing to make sure that that will happen. God isn't like that. As a sovereign over all, he wills and executes. He has a will and a way. One author puts it well. He says, either we cannot bring ourselves to choose what we know to be right, or else having chosen that, we fail to do it. Sin has corrupted both the power to choose and the power to accomplish. But God is effectually and ceaselessly at work in you, both to will and work. Church, it is that truth that ought to empower us in holy living, in sanctification. God is at work. When sin seems to cling so closely, take refuge in knowing that God is at work. When when temptations look too great to deny, fight them knowing that God is at work. When discouragement threatens to take away your joy, rest, knowing God is at work for his own good pleasure. It is God's work that even enables us to even want to work at all. John Murray says it simply, because God works, we work. I wonder how this can make a difference in your daily life, Christian. For one thing, I think it must wake those of you up who are just coasting in your faith. If you're putting off dealing with sinful habits, if you're putting off obedient steps you know you must take, if you're putting off reconciling a relationship you've broken, Your own heart and the guilt you feel isn't the only thing you need to deal with. If you're in Christ, God is at work in you. You need to deal with him too. If you're his child, he will not let you go. Repent and turn again to him. Stop fighting the one who has saved you and will finally save you completely. And like we said before, For some of you, I think probably most of you, this truth this morning needs to greatly encourage you. Perhaps your life, your walk with God is seeming like an endless cycle of discouragement with no real change. You have prayed, you have fasted, you have memorized, you have sought counsel and still the same temptation persists. You have pleaded with the Lord in prayer and still the same relationship is broken. If that's you, Christian, remember this morning that God is at work in you. You're not at this alone. He will complete the good work in you he has begun. The work of the Christian in sanctification is a very real work that takes very real effort and the work that undergirds that work is the work of the sovereign God in our souls. Finally, and very briefly then, let's see the work of Paul. The work of the Christian, the work of God, the work of Paul. There at the end of verse 16, look what he says. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul was an apostle. None of us are. Uh, he had been given a special task by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and build up the church. And so he commands the Philippian believers not to grumble, but to be blameless and shine until the return of the king, until the day of Christ. So that as they shine on, they will be well prepared for the return of Christ and Paul's joys will just be off the charts. They will be found on that last day obedient, living a life worthy of the gospel and Paul's joy will bubble over. This is Paul's work. His, his work for Christ. For Paul, his ministry will not be run in vain if it proves fruitful for the glory of Christ. Yes, even in suffering, there will be joy. Back in the Old Testament, when we were studying through Exodus, you might remember kind of the sacrificial system this Jewish system that pointed ahead to Jesus and was fulfilled at the cross as Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, was crucified for our sin. And we see that in the Old Testament, a burnt offering of worship to God would be accompanied by a drink offering of wine poured over it. So here Paul is drawing on this imagery to say, even if his life is poured out, to accompany the faith of the Philippians. That'll be enough for him. He will rejoice. He will be glad. I love how one author sees this as a picture of the heart and souls of, of Paul and the church being mixed together. Such is the joy of the shepherd watching the church grow in holiness. Such is the joy of Paul Paul's heart and his work for the glory of God and the good of the church is a beautiful sight for us to behold this morning. Because he would pursue that work even to death. For him to live was Christ and to die in the work of Christ would be gain. As we wrap up, let's take Paul's example then, church, and seek to work out our salvation with one another. Taking joy when we see others' triumphs in grace. Taking joy when we see others' sins put to death. Taking joy in the work of God in us and through us as we eagerly wait for heaven. I was thinking of, of you all this week as I thought about this, and I, I think of those of you who are working out your salvation in prayer. Earnestly, with tears praying for those who are far off from God. I think of those of you who are working out your salvation in denial. Denial of your sinful desires that wage war in your body and never leave you alone. Keep working. I think of those of you who are working out your salvation in endurance taking those doubts and depressions that hit you every single day in stride, knowing that Jesus will be worth it all. Keep working. Keep going, church. Work it out. God is working in you. There's an old hymn that has a chorus that goes like this. As we think about Paul's imagery of running the race, Working it out until we get to heaven. I love the old hymn. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face. All sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race. Till we see Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord, we want to persevere. But even more than our desire to persevere, we take rest in the fact that you preserve us. You hold us fast. Thank you that in the midst of this call to action from the Apostle Paul, we are reminded again that you are active in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And so, Lord, hear us now as we respond to this text with a prayer that you, great God, would make us more like Christ, would weed out sin, and help us to be ready for his return. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.